The Russians have made it clear for a long time that they're not seriously interested in helping us, well, on anything, actually. It is the week of January 3rd, and welcome to episode 112 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and your host. Over the past few weeks, we have seen a massing of Russian military forces near Ukraine, prompting many to think that a full-scale invasion could be imminent. President Biden and Vladimir Putin have spoken about the situation at least twice in the past month. Today, Fault Lines will do a deep dive on the crisis with Fred Kagan, Senior Fellow and Director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute. Fred, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks very much for having me. So let's start with Russian actions and intentions and subterfuge and whatnot, and then move from there to the American response. How is this buildup of Russian forces different than what we saw in the spring of 2021, when obviously Russia did not, in fact, invade Ukraine? Well, this buildup is on a larger scale. Um, it involves uh, more forces and forces moving to different areas. Um, and it also reportedly involves uh, some of the more specialized uh, forces that support combat troops in in addition to just the combat troops. So um, there was there was some of that, enough of that in April actually to be very concerning, but there appears to be even more now. It looks more, both larger and more like the actual preparation for an actual invasion uh, than the April exercise did, even though the April exercise was probably sufficient for an attack if Putin had chosen to order one. And as a longtime Putin watcher, what what do you make of the fact that all of this seems to have been done in public? In other words, we've been talking about it for months. The, the buildup of forces is known. It's on social media. There are people on the ground who are running around kind of taking surreptitious photos and videos of movements. There are private satellite photos of what's happening. This this seems to have been done in perhaps a different way than other Russian moves. Should we read anything into that? Well, the Russians actually haven't done it more publicly than they did the previous one. Actually, on the contrary, our, uh, the, our team that's been following this very closely at the Institute for the Study of War has observed the Russians have been much more disciplined, actually, uh, this time in terms of preventing people from getting a lot of uh, film footage of vehicles moving around and stuff. Um, the problem is you can't move tens of thousands of troops around and not have it be seen in this day and age. Uh, if nothing else, it's visible from satellite. Um, and the satellite, commercial satellite imagery these days is uh, more than good enough uh, to do the kind of analysis that in the past only the intelligence community could do. So they never would have been able to keep this secret um, from the public. But they have put a little bit more effort this time into tr trying to keep it a little bit sort of more opaque. Um, but of course, if you step back from all of that, I personally think that they want it to be known. And that's that's part of the intention here. So one of one of the other things we've seen over the last few years is Putin's reliance on this concept of hybrid warfare. In other words, using different techniques to kind of affect the same outcome, which is control of territory. He uses uh, non-Russian forces augmented by forces that are probably Russian, but he won't admit to them. He, he maintains a certain amount of, as implausible as it seems, deniability about what's happening on the ground. We saw this uh, particularly with 
the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. That doesn't seem to be the case here. This seems to be a more robust classical, to the extent something's going to happen as it, as it appears now, looks like more of a traditional military invasion and not kind of this hybrid approach. What, what are your thoughts? So uh, Mason Clark at the Institute for the Study of War has done really terrific couple of reports on hybrid warfare. And his uh, conclusion is that it, hybrid warfare itself is actually a little bit different from the way most people think about it. It's actually not primarily about doing things with little green men and deniability and all of that sort of stuff. The way the Russians formally define hybrid warfare is the conduct of all operations, including military operations, in support of informational objectives. And the purpose of hybrid war is to change the geopolitical orientation of a state. In that sense, what they're doing now is fully consonant with all of the previous uh, efforts along hybrid war uh, that they have done in the past, if you understand hybrid war in the way that they do. Nevertheless, your point is valid. Um, If Putin goes ahead and just big fat invades Ukraine, that will be a sea change, a complete reversal of the approach that he's taken hitherto, which is one of the reasons why our assessment and forecast is that he probably will not, in fact, invade Ukraine. And he probably doesn't intend to, certainly not invade all of Ukraine and create it on a vast scale, um, but that the intent is actually to achieve an informational, political and diplomatic effect uh, with this mobilization rather than actually to invade. Now, the problem is that in order to achieve that effect, he has to create the capability to invade, which means that an analyst like me has a problem. I can't tell you whether my assessment is right or not until he does or does not invade, because it would look exactly the same right up until the moment when he does or doesn't go. Well, it, what fun would it be if you were actually able to predict the future? Uh, the, the fun part is that you might be wrong. That's why people are listening. Uh, so so let's let's explore a little bit this this concept that you mooted of the big fat invasion. In other words, the old school, let's take over all the territory, roll in with a massive force and control everything on the ground. Talk about, if you can, what that would mean in practice. What's the scale of that? If if that were to happen, if Russia were to roll in with all of these forces, 100,000 plus uh, troops uh, on or near the border with Ukraine, go into Ukraine, try to main, maintain control of all the territory. Is that akin to the U.S. going into Iraq in 2003? Is there a, is there a better comparison? What What would this actually mean in terms of commitment and cost and long-term sustainability for Putin? No, uh, the the 2003 invasion of Iraq would be the closest parallel uh, to this in terms of scale and complexity. Um, Ukraine is a bigger country than Iraq. Uh, The population is uh, larger than Iraq's was. Uh, It's much more um, dispersed. Uh, It has multiple uh, cities with with, uh, around a million people or more. Uh, whereas uh, Iraq was was pretty centralized, it would be a massive undertaking. Um, it would require, you know, 150, 175,000 Russian troops, uh, which are estimates of the numbers that we've been seeing. And it would have generate a lot of casualties. And it would generate a lot of casualties on both sides. One of the biggest problems the Russians would have is, is a problem that we also encountered um, in Iraq and that the Russians have encountered in Syria, which is urban warfare. Uh, they would have to figure out how they were going to take uh, well, Kiev, which is a city of more than four and a half million people, uh, but also a number of other cities of a million people or more. Um, there have been published reports claiming to by people claiming to have seen an intercepted Russian plan that talks about how the Russians think they would 
do this. Uh, they involve encircling the cities and cutting off all of the supplies and then waiting for the cities to surrender. If I were a professional military officer responsible for coming up with a plan, I'd be very uncomfortable with a plan that relied on that happening smoothly. And then that relied on my ability to just move into the city after that and not have any problem or not have a big problem. And I think that the Russian chief of general staff, um, Gerasimov, is a professional officer, which makes me a little skeptical that the plans that are being discussed are actually the plans that they would do. But look, if they did that, you would see armored, you know, mechanized forces drive in, surround cities, presumably wait for them to surrender, then move in. And then they would have to uh, fight whatever rearguard action they were going to fight with Ukrainians, some of whom certainly would continue to fight um, in insurgent uh, or some other fashion. Um, it could turn into some very nasty urban warfare. And then the big problem, and we tried to highlight this in the report that we published um, a few weeks ago, um, that uh, then Putin has to decide how to govern it. And that's really, as, as we discovered in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's really quite a complicated uh, and somewhat fraught undertaking. Uh, and surely Putin will have thought the matter through. Um, but it's there's an awful lot of complexity there. And again, these are factors that weigh on our conclusion that he's not likely actually to conduct a huge invasion that would inevitably inflict a lot of uh, Russian casualties but also present him with this governance dilemma that, um, you know, he might, he might or might not be very enthusiastic about taking on. I know this isn't really a military factor, but there's all these cobblestone streets in Kiev. They're impossible to get down quickly. seems to me like actually invading the city would be a big mistake. And I say that as a totally non-military person. Uh, all right. I was totally joking about that. But let's, let's talk about, and I, and I know this was uh, in, in the work you've done already, but for our listeners' sake, absent a full invasion of Ukraine, what are the other more likely uh, actions that Putin is going to take in the next few months? One of the things we need to be really alarmed about is that um, we have become rightly and understandably focused on the threat of this full-scale Russian invasion. And one of the effects that can have is that if he does something less than that, uh, there will be a tendency to breathe a sigh of relief, um, which is a problem because he can do a lot of things less than that that actually would be very problematic. Um, one of them is he can move Russian ground forces uh, permanently into Belarus. And our team uh, has been assessing that and forecasting that he would do that for a while. He's taken longer than we thought he would, in fact, to do that. Um, but he uh, may well do that um, in the course of this crisis. That would create a huge uh, challenge to the Eastern NATO countries and to NATO's ability to defend uh, the Baltic states in particular, and it would put, uh, you know, Russian forces on the Polish border uh, again for the first time since the fall of the Soviet Union. That would be a really big deal. Um, it's not an invasion of anything. It would happen with the agreement of um, uh, Lukashenko, Belarus's president, but um, it would be a big deal. And I, I think that that's likely to happen. Uh, the next most likely thing to happen is, as you said, so Putin has been in Donbass uh, with uh, implausibly deniable forces uh, since uh, 2014. Um, and he still is there. And we know that the Russians actually control the military forces of the puppet republics that he's created and so on. Uh, but he could move Russian forces overtly into that region. And by doing that, he could pose a much more significant threat to the Ukrainians uh, trying to defend their own territory on the other side, uh, well, within their own territory, trying to defend the rest of their territory uh, against Russian positions in Donbass. Um, but he would also create a massive political problem for uh 
Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, by doing that. And I think that it's likely that we'll see him uh, see Putin move his forces overtly into Donbass as well. Um, the next step would be uh, an invasion along the northern coast of the Sea of Azov. Uh, the city, the small city of Mariupol is a coastal town that is just outside the area of Russian occupation in Donbass. And uh, it was too hard for the Russians and their proxies to take um, earlier on. He could take it now. And that would allow him to drive down the coast and establish what, what we call a land bridge uh, between the Crimean Peninsula and Russia proper which would solve a lot of logistical problems for him that um, he's having um, in Crimea. But it would all cut Ukraine off from uh, part of its coastline. And of course, it would be an additional invasion uh, and occupation of Ukrainian territory. Um, I think that that is less likely than the Belarus or Donbass options, but I think it's reasonably likely. And that's one of the ones that really distresses me because that's one that I, I could see the Europeans in particular, but but even, even a lot of Americans saying, oh, well, you know, whew, at least that's all he did. And, you know, at least he didn't take a major city, at least he didn't invade all of it. But it actually would be, in addition to yet another outrageous violation of international law and act of aggression, um, it would actually be a big deal um, in Ukraine and would change the dynamics there. So, that concerns me a lot as an option. There are other courses of action that he might take. There are other things he could do. I don't even particularly want to list them unless you want to go into them more, because I think they're much less likely. They tend to be much more dangerous for the Russians um, in various different ways. And I can talk about them if you want to, but I think those are the most likely. Fred, pull, let's pull back a little bit and talk about the the diplomacy that's the so-called diplomacy that's already been going on, the rhetoric, the two conversations between President Biden and President Putin about the crisis, about the crisis that Putin has has rather deftly manufactured here, the the consequences for NATO, uh, what other European powers have said or done about the crisis. Reflecting on all that, how much has this activity already benefited Vladimir Putin and in what way? One of the things that Putin is certainly trying to do uh, with this is to create drive a series of wedges um, into the Western alliance and the Western alliance relations with Ukraine. He's trying to separate Ukraine from NATO He's trying to separate the United States from its European partners. He's trying to separate Western NATO countries from Eastern NATO countries. And he's trying to create antagonisms between NATO and the European Union. Um, this crisis, combined with the energy crisis that he's also generating or helping to generate, is definitely creating those tensions and is definitely has benefited him by causing uh, President Zelensky uh, multiple times to request assistance from NATO, to press for a membership action plan for NATO, and be turned down uh, by NATO. That's very damaging to Zelensky, and it's very damaging to Ukraine. It's unfortunate that Zelensky um, has been put in a position, that Putin has put Zelensky in a position where he feels the need to keep asking for something that he's not going to get and keep being turned down by it, uh, by, by NATO for that. Um, Putin's engagement with President Biden is also somewhat problematic um, and benefits Putin in a couple of ways. One is Putin is constantly trying to establish uh, that Russia is the heir of the Soviet Union, is a global superpower um, on a par with the United States and above all others. And every time that he gets a summit and every time that he basically coerces an American president into treating him in that way is a win for him. Um, I wouldn't 
refuse, if I were in President Biden's position, I wouldn't refuse to negotiate with him just because it gives him a win. But we should recognize that it does uh, give Putin something that he wants very much. In this case, he's actually gotten something more than that, which is he's gotten an agreement uh, from the United States, apparently, to talk uh, with him in a bilateral format about matters that relate to the NATO alliance. Now, the White House has been very aggressive about making clear that it's not going to make agreements about NATO with Putin that it, without NATO uh, being involved, that it's not going to do anything you know, wrong and so forth. And I believe that that's true. I accept the, the, what the White House says about that. But the fact is that the optics of allowing Putin to engage in a bilateral discussion with the U.S. about co- alliance matters is a victory uh, for Putin. And the Russian media has been playing it that way and has been talking about uh, complaints in Europe about the way the negotiations are being conducted, uh, which, you know, it's it's it, if it were if the whole situation weren't so tragic, it would be fun to watch the way the Russians create a situation, start feeding narrative lines, see those lines echoed back to them from their victims and then take what the victims say and feed it back into the information game that they're actually playing. They're extremely good at it. And uh, they have grist for that mill here. All right, Fred, I, forgive me. I didn't, I didn't, we, I, we didn't talk about this before the show, but I'm so tempted now to ask you a very politically charged question and you can feel free to refuse to answer. But uh, given what you just laid out, and I totally agree that this, this bilateral <laughs> conversation between Biden and Putin only really benefits Putin at the end of the day and kind of recast the conflict with him in a much more elevated role, kind of downplays U.S. alliances and friends in the region. If if the previous president of the United States had done something like this, would uh, Donald Trump, would we not be seeing a completely different media environment uh, and, and conversation around these actions? You have rightly guessed that I will absolutely refuse to engage in any such conversation with you Very or anyone. Total, totally fair. Totally fair. Uh, but it does, it does, it's for some reason has popped into my head. So let's talk about these conversations between President Biden and, and Vladimir Putin. The, there are pros, there are cons, of course, and it is, uh, as Winston Churchill said, jaw jaw is better than war war. Is, is that the real choice here? Could President Biden have taken a different approach than direct conversations with Vladimir Putin or rather that, you know, was it was it simply a, a, a kind of a binomial choice between war or phone calls? Was there another option? Was there another route he could have taken to deal with this crisis? A superficially simple question, uh, which is actually incredibly complicated, right? Um, let's unpack some assumptions. Does Putin intend to invade or not? This is one of the hardest things uh, that we are dealing with in trying to understand what's going on is being very clear in our minds on what based on what set of assumptions we're proceeding while we have a particular conversation and not inadvertently flip-flopping back and forth between assumptions. So if we assume that Putin intends to invade, then the negotiations as framed will not stop him because the things that he is demanding from us presumably in this scenario as the conditions for not invading, although he's never made that explicit, um, we can't give him, we actually can't give him the things that he's demanding. So 
if you think that he intends to invade and that the negotiations are the way to have him not invade, that's a problem because he's in that case issued an ultimatum that we can't meet. And so presumably in that case, there will be some discussions and then he will invade if that's if he has decided to invade. Now, still on the assumption that he intends to invade, there are other things that we could be doing along with negotiating with him. And I Again, I have no problem with negotiating. I think that negotiations are good. And I think one negotiates with one's enemies. And that's that's a good thing to do. I don't have a problem with that inherently. We could talk about details of exactly what and how you negotiate. But if you think that he really intends to invade, then and the negotiations cannot be enough because of the way the demands are framed and so forth, then you have to ask, are there things that we could do to deter him? And the answer is, yes, of course, there are. Now, we have been doing some of them. Uh, the administration has been moving American military hardware around. Uh, it has kept a carrier battle group in the Mediterranean that was supposed to move into the Middle East. That's a big deal. That's a lot of capability. Uh, it puts sent an Aegis destroyer into the, the uh, Black Sea. That's a big deal. It's a lot of capability that he has to worry about. It's done a number of other things. Um, but if we think that he intends to invade and we have to talk him out of it, then we need to do more to persuade him that he will pay an excessively high price in that war. And in that case, I think it's important that we'd be willing to put on the table that we might fight if he invades Ukraine. Um, And the president had made a statement that was, you know, interpreted as we will not fight. Uh, In fact, his statement was more nuanced than that. Um, And I think that the it's not clear to me what the administration's position is on this. Um, and ambiguity is is okay. But I do think that if you if you think that Putin is going to invade, then ambiguity is probably not enough. We 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 need to make it clear that no, we, we will do what we need to do to make this intolerably costly for Putin. And we could do that if we chose. That's all on the assumption that you think he's going to invade. If you think that he did never intended to invade. Then we have to talk about, well, what, then what is he trying to do? And there you get into a discussion of what is he trying to achieve inside of Ukraine? And what is he trying to achieve vis-a-vis the coalition and the, and the alliance and, and so on? Um, and in that case, um, you might decide that since we don't think he's going to invade, therefore, and, and even if he were going to invade, we don't think that these direct negotiations can, will prevent him from invading then you might think more about the precise format of the negotiations and orient on what can we do to strengthen the alliance unity? What can we do to strengthen um, Eastern NATO partnership with Western NATO countries? What can we do to strengthen the relationship with Ukraine to counteract all of the efforts that he's making to weaken it and make it fray? And then, then you might move down a somewhat different path in terms of the kinds of negotiations and conversations that you that you have. But in no case um, is it simply a straightforward binary choice uh, between negotiations and war. The, I think the Biden administration has been, I don't think the Biden administration has ever suggested that, that it was such a bifurcation. And I think that um, they are approaching it with an understanding that it's that it's more complicated than that. All right, let's pull let's pull way back and talk about the context of the decisions that President Biden is having to make here. Uh, there's not just one crisis in the world. There are there are several. Uh, one of the ones that may be related to this is the ongoing negotiations with Iran over its nuclear weapons program. Russia is a party to those talks. I think it's fair to say that without 
Russian support for the American position. It'd be very difficult to get a renewed nuclear agreement with the Iranians. How much do you think that issue is a factor in the thinking of the Biden administration and perhaps the actions it's taking vis-a-vis Putin and Ukraine? I never like to speculate about what is or is not going through the mind of any anyone or any administration or how they're thinking about things, um, because I don't know. The Russians have made it clear for a long time that they're not seriously interested in helping us, well, on anything, actually. But in particular, they're not seriously interested in helping us on the Iran uh, portfolio. Um, I think it would be very misguided to imagine that there's some set of uh, concessions that we could make to the Russians vis-a-vis Ukraine that would lead them to do anything effective in those negotiations with Iran. Because the issue is twofold. The issue is, on the one hand, would Putin do it? And on the other could he actually compel the Iranians to do something that they didn't want to do? Um, it's not at all clear that he's interested in doing it. It does seem increasingly clear that he probably doesn't have what it takes to compel the Iranians to do anything that they don't want to do on this line. So I I think that, you know, publicly, the administration has not linked these two issues. Um, the readouts from the calls with Putin have focused, I mean, they mentioned other things, but it's been very clear that the calls have been very focused on Ukraine. Um, and I, I think that the administration is treating that crisis with the, as you say, that, that Putin manufactured um, with the gravity and seriousness that it deserves and not engaging in a, what would be an inappropriate linkage with the, with the Iranian talks. Now, there's a whole other conversation that we could have about the continued general lack of willingness in our political discourse to recognize that the war that is actually looming is the war in the Middle East, even more in some respects than the war in Ukraine, if our forecast is right. Um, But we have collectively in our national security discourse become so caught up in the pivot to, to Asia and the focus on China, which is important and which I don't want to to downplay in any way, that um, we're, we're tending not to think about the consequences of what can go down in the Middle East and how the United States might be involved in multiple conflicts at the same time, neither of them in Asia, um, and how that is something maybe we should reflect in our national security documents and so on. That's a whole nother series of podcasts, I think, Fred. So I'm, I'm not, as intriguing as that is, I want to I kind of close this one out with a couple more questions. Uh, if, if you're a a viewer of cable news networks, you have the joy of kind of hearing this argument that the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, uh, whether it was necessary or not, and then in particular, the way it was executed, may have impacted the way other world leaders think about the U.S. willingness to come to the aid of its friends and allies. So the argument goes, we pulled out of Afghanistan when we didn't really have to. We pulled out very poorly. We were desperate to leave. The signal to Putin is we won't stand by our friends in Kyiv. We won't come to the assistance of the, of Ukraine, however broadly speaking that assistance might be. Uh, and and he can and he therefore has a little more flexibility in what he wants to do. What do you what do you think of that argument? The Russians message that to the Ukrainians and to others um, loudly. The Chinese have messaged that to the Taiwanese. Uh, loudly and clearly. Uh, Our adversaries have very clearly uh, looked at that and drawn conclusions. Um, There is a correlation uh, in time between the 
the end of the American withdrawal and an inflection in the kind of rhetoric that we saw uh, coming from Moscow became more bellicose, more uh, accusatory or demanding, which is saying a lot for Russian rhetoric, but there there was an inflection. Um, I want to be careful about drawing too much um, of a conclusion from that correlation because it coincided also with the actual Russian exercises that stringing a lot of the forces uh, to the borders of Ukraine that would have been preparing for an invasion. So if he is in fact preparing for an invasion, he might well have been planning to conduct a more aggressive invasion operation to support it anyway. And the timing could be coincidental. Uh, there's no way for us to prove it one way or the other, but there is a correlation there. And I do think that it is unfortunately too easy to look at uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan based on the agreements that we had with the Afghan government and the expectation of support that we had given the Afghan government, although President Biden and others could say, well, but we had also made it clear that we were leaving and that we were going to pull out and so forth. So there's there's some ambiguity. But nevertheless, when you compare this, the commitments that the Afghan government thought it had from us with the much more limited commitments, which include no commitment actually to defense that the Ukrainian government thinks it has, it's easy to see that um, Putin could well imagine that uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal shows that if we're not prepared to fight that, we're certainly not prepared to fight him for Ukraine um, and felt that as a green light. So it's, I think it's very likely a factor. I think if Putin invades Ukraine even a little bit now and the U.S. reaction is weak or, or too limited, we will have an exponential increase of that effect which the Chinese will be watching very closely, which the Iranians will be watching very closely. So I think this is a very fraught moment. Um, and I think that the administration understands that and is taking this crisis with a, with a, with a very high degree of seriousness, um, because I, I think that there's, a, there's an understanding of what the stakes here actually are in the, in the context. All right. Uh, final, final question. Uh, about six months ago, the Chinese and the Russians renewed their treaty of friendship for another five years. I don't know why, but it made me think of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939. And this treaty, if you will, to the extent it's real at all, does seem to indicate that Russia and China going have interests that are aligned against the United States. And they're willing to forego whatever disagreements they may have, broadly speaking, to focus on antagonism with the United States and the West. How real do you think that is over time? Uh, President Xi Jinping is going to be anointed as leader for life effectively this year. Once that happens, you think the Russians can really count on China not looking to all of the incredible resources to the North uh, with a with a certain degree of, of greed and envy? I don't think that Putin is foolish enough to count on the Chinese for anything. Um, and he has the additional problem that the Chinese, in some respects, don't need to invade the Russian Far East because they already have. Uh, demographic shifts out there are stunning. Um, when you look at the, and honestly, when you look at the deployment of Russian forces um, along the Chinese border, that it's a deployment that does not suggest that the Russians seriously think that they could fight uh, the People's Liberation Army toe to toe and stop it from taking that area if they really wanted to. Um, but the Russian answer to the Chinese threat is what the Soviet answer has always been, which is we're not not interested in how large the People's Liberation Army is. We're interested in how large our nuclear stockpile is compared to yours. And um, if you start this war, we'll end it. Um, and that's that's his basic focus of defense in terms of an actual Chinese invasion. I think the um, 
larger problem that he has is the Chinese penetration of Central Asia. And that is something that has the Chinese been working on for a while. And the Chinese are taking advantage of the vacuum that our withdrawal from Afghanistan has created um, and the destabilization that it's fueling, which was already destabilization, but the, the withdrawal fueled it in Central Asia uh, to push further into territories that Putin considers to be rightfully his. Um, I think if you're going to see a Russo-Chinese conflict, you're much more likely to see it um, emerging from Central Asia than from a direct sort of Chinese push um, to the north, as it were. But stepping back from those details, look, the Russians and the Chinese, along with the Iranians, and there's your there's your full World War II axis, if you want, the Iranians can be the Italians, I suppose. The Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians are all trying to either change in the case of the Chinese or destroy in the case of the Russians and the Iranians, the rules-based international order that the United States and its Western allies created after World War II. The Russians and the Iranians are completely explicit about this. Uh, the Chinese are in a much more complicated position because they've partially entered that order and they benefit from it enormously and they depend on it to a considerable degree. And I don't think that they want to destroy it, but they do want to modify it. But for now, they are content to move along with the Russians and the Iranians in a direction that weakens it because the force that everyone is trying to weaken is the United States. And the, all three of them uh, are in agreement that weakening the United States and pushing the United States back into the Western Hemisphere at most um, is is in their interest and they're, they're happy to work along those lines. I don't see any reason in the short term why the Russo-Chinese Entente should uh, break down, it, with the possible exception of Central Asia. Um, neither do I see either side going to war for the other uh, or uh, risking some sort of major defeat or setback simply to advantage the other. And in that respect, I think it's easy to overestimate the strength of that entente, uh, even as we observe, you know, observe those countries cohering in their efforts to weaken us. Marvelous. Fred, thank you very much. This has been a, uh, a terrific conversation. We really loved uh, having you on Fault Lines. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jacob Sarnecki for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.